Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Thanks for joining us again. We've got a lot to talk about today. Got some great guests. Uh, I, maybe not a great guest, but I got something I want to say to you. <laughs> I uh, took a trip to the West. Uh, Chris Beach went with me. We'll get him on here in a second. Went uh, and engaged in a debate at Notre Dame de Namur University uh, in Burlingame, California. The debate was with Michael Chertoff. And he was the head of Homeland Security, Secretary of Homeland Security, during Bush Jr., Bush uh, W. I thought he did a good and competent job. I know he hired people uh, who were good, some of the people who had worked for me in an earlier time. But um, we debated because that's the way it is now. He had been pretty critical of Trump on the Muslim ban and other things, and I was uh, in the, given the task of defending which I think I did reasonably well. What did you take away? I want to get into some specifics, Chris, but what did you take away from the debate? I thought it was a very good debate. Uh, first of all, very civil. Uh, it was a good engagement on both sides. Uh, but in well, terms of a little of the... too civil. Right? <laughs> Maybe. You know, yeah. yeah. A little, little Irish locker room. <laughs> me, you know. Yeah, you were looking to mix it up. Um, he did have a he did have a, g- a good little line in the beginning. He mentioned your past position as drugs are. So that's a great title because it may be coming back now. Yeah, this was uh, the the Russian connection. Yeah, good lord, it yeah. was a reach. But anyway, these Trump people, anti-Trump people, will go for anything. I was the drugs are well. That's a Russian title. No, it's funny. It was harmless. Go ahead. Yeah, um, but in terms of substance, uh, maybe we can start from the from the end of the debate because I think this is where you guys actually differed the most, which was on sanctuary cities. Um, and he seemed to take the side of the states here in a way, and you took the side more of federal authority. He said as a general proposition, uh, the federal law does uh, is supreme, does decide, does govern uh, with a conflict of, of local laws uh, on many issues, not on all, but on many. And that when it comes to enforcement of the federal law, the states have to respect it. Um, just put a little skin on that. You will remember something called the Civil War. Right. States were not free to secede from the Union. Right. Uh, and bear that in mind in all these debates about states and states' rights. Now something that uh, liberals tend to clothe themselves in more than conservatives who did in another time. But then he said, uh, after making the point that federal law has to be respected, Constitution and so on, he then said, I think twice, uh, but these things should be decided at the local level. Now, that, that's an ambigu- ambiguous phrase, meaning it should be decided locally, a consultation between the feds and the locals as to what the right course of action is. I took him to mean authority to power to make a decision uh, is rest with the local. Right. And isn't that how you took him? Yeah, and he cited some uh, case Lopez. law, which, um, the Lopez case, which said that the feds cannot coerce the states um, to enact federal law and require the states to use state funds and state resources. Um, but which you countered and said, there obviously are some cases where the federal government has supreme authority. Um, interest of national security and things. Yeah, clearly a case of uh, immigrants who are violating the law, and uh, you know, immigrants killed somebody. Uh, immigrants who you know violate every rule and uh, requirement of in a state, uh, and this is it seems to me obvious um, that the case for sanctuary cities. By the way, I think it's politically obvious. I think if the states go to the war on this, they're going to lose. People are going to say no. And partly because of the nature of the issue, uh, you know, if you were talking about some other issue, you might get a different thing, like, you know, states be allowed to violate federal law by legalizing marijuana. <laughs> right. A lot of people would say, oh, sure, fine. Not me, but a lot of people would say, sure, fine. But um, that's, that, that, that's the case. I, anyway, I, I don't, I, I pointed out at the podium, I said that California entire state regards itself <laughs> as a sanctuary state. Yeah. That's a big part of the United States, so, you know, uh, I hope we can pay attention to that. That was a disagreement. There was also, I think, a a tonal disagreement, if not in substance, about talking about Muslims. Uh, I talked about Muslims a lot. He didn't. He just said, um, no, he said, you know, the Muslim ban was, you know, was both 
under-inclusive and over-inclusive. Um, and I pointed out that it couldn't have been an exclusively or primarily Muslim ban, ban on Muslims, because 85% of Muslims in the world were excluded from the ban. Right. Uh, the, or- the original ban. The original ban. Right. Muslims from uh, Saudi Arabia, India, Indonesia, and so on. Um he seemed concerned about that all the way through. Go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think the big divide uh, on the travel ban is it was over. He said that it was too broad and that you should look at people's behavior. And that's what he went back to. And you said, no, you should look at people's beliefs. Right. I think the heart of it. Now, he said, to fairness to him, he said, well, I'm with Bill. I'd like to know their beliefs. But can you know what a person believes other than through his behavior? And then we had a little exchange, and I said, yeah, in the age of the Internet, you can. Unless you count that as behavior, I don't. Um, you know, people reveal their souls on the Internet in ways they didn't to priests a generation ago. Right. So I do think that. But my point here is it's what's in the mind of man. That's why I, I reject this whole lone wolf idea, lone wolf or directed orders. When you're talking about... Um, you know, communicating and reading off the internet, you're not alone. Uh, I think I said at one point, in the age of the internet, you're never alone. Right. It may not be connected in the way people should be connected interpersonally, uh, with intimacy, you know, with touch, with, uh, you know, familiarity, uh, only electronically, virtually. But, you know, in, in, a, in an important sense, particularly this generation, you're not alone. But what I was getting at more significantly was the point that our friend Andy McCarthy makes um, over and over again, which is um, what we're what we're screening for, whether we're vetting in a general way or an extreme way or a really extreme vetting, is what do you believe? And are you a Sharia supremacist? Sharia supremacism means there's Sharia law, and if you believe in Sharia supremacism, you believe that Sharia should govern everything. Uh, and that means the Constitution and everything else. Uh, and it overrides everything. And it also means dictates to kill the infidel and kill the homosexual and beat up your wives and daughters and not give equal rights to women and all sorts of other things. And I think you can find out, uh, partly uh, through uh, what people say on the Internet and in an interview, uh, whether... Uh, people subscribe to this or that or not. But but let's step back because I said it seems to me one of the things that bedevils this whole debate is the notion that people who co- apply to come to this country have a right to come to this country. Nobody has a right to come to this country. No foreign national has a right to become an American. The burden of proof is on them to justify why they should come. Now, a guy like Tom Cotton and Senator Perdue from Georgia have come up with the raise bill, which says, hey, if you add to the well-being of the country and you have talents that we can use and you're going to be a good citizen, fine, let's use that as criteria. But even there, you've got to meet a burden of proof. But nobody has a right to get in. Uh, and that's very, very important, which means if you're interviewing some 26-year-old guy from Syria and you can't figure out where he's coming from, you err on the side of no. Uh, if, if you can't decide, the toss-up goes to the government, not to the applicant. So uh, that seems to me to make sense, and I hope that's what the extreme vetting is getting at. I also then said that, look, in terms of people coming in through the border, and I said in this whole debate, let's remember, there's two kind of arenas or, or fields. One is uh, the southern border, which is about generally poor people to the, from the south, pouring in for well-being jobs, get reunited with family. The other is the whole question of radical Muslims coming in. Um, And these are subject to a different analysis and ought to be subject to a different analysis. However, both principles, same principles apply to both in this sense. Nobody has a right to come in, uh, and um, the screening should be a lot lot better and a lot more more effective. But um, it's critical to understand this. We have... 40 million people living in this country who were not born here. I think it's like 20 million naturalized citizens, 20 million not. And, you know, that's a lot of people. I, I just, anecdotally, 
after the guy uh, in New York who you know murdered people with the truck on the walkway there, they went around. I was watching, I think, MSNBC, and they interviewed random people, six or seven people. That was interesting to me. Not a single person had um, an, an American accent or even a New York accent. There wasn't. There was. These were foreign accents. Everybody was interviewed, young and old. You could tell had come from another country. Yeah, and and a lot of people who were actually injured were the Argentinians who Absolutely, were Absolutely, yeah. So we're, we're already, uh, you know, melting pot in terms of numbers. Now, whether we assimilate well enough is another question. But we have a lot of people. Two other points on this. One, surveys have been done. I think Mark Krikorian is the guy who's done this. And a few surveyed people around the world who wants to come to the United States, uh, first choice, you would get something like seven or 800 million people. Uh, that's. I think everybody would say that's just too much. Is there any liberal who would say that ah, sounds fine? I mean, that's the end of the country, certainly. Which means if you have a lot more people wanting to come than you have place for, you got to use some criteria to figure out who comes. So nobody can afford, avoid, nobody can avoid the ordeal of judgment that we're talking about. Uh, that we're talking about here. The other point I made was this uh, Milton Friedman point. Friedman. Um, free market economist was in favor of broad immigration. Uh, then would he be now? I don't know. But he was pretty much op- open up the gates. Um, but he said you cannot have uh, this kind of broad open up the gates immigration policy when you have generous welfare policy because you can't afford it because a large number of percentage of your people coming in are going to need welfare. And, and you'll, just, you'll either get overwhelmed or you'll go broke. You can't do both. Anyway, those were the points I tried to make, and he generally agreed. Um, it was just there was kind of a sense of let's try to be more compassionate. Let's try to watch our language. Let's try to be firm and fair. But he did stand up, I thought, pretty well for the rule of law, right? Yeah, he did, um, and he talked about that in the sense of uh, President Trump doing the right thing when it comes to this DACA decision sending it um, back to Congress to legislate rather than using executive fiat like Obama did to enact his own immigration policy. So I thought that was uh, one thing where you guys both agreed on. Um, but if there was one example of something that you disagreed on and which harkens back to your your important point about the onus, the burden of the proof, was on refugees. And he was very much in favor of let's continue to allow refugees yeah. to come. They go through strict vetting. Um, but in, in his you know, underlying his assumptions was that the U.S. is responsible for doing the vetting, and your point was the onus should be on these refugees coming to supply information, documentation that says who we are, where, what we believe, where we're from, um, and why we're going to be, you know, yeah, em- embrace America. Yeah, we do this live, folks. So you know, that's uh, a great point. I want you to do something while I'm answering. Find that quote from that Kristen Nelson or whatever her name is, the new head of HHS, and not HHS, DHS. I think it was quoted in Breitbart. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Um, because this was shocking to me. But let me talk first to the general point about the refugees and what it means. One is um, I, agree, I disagree that uh, we should be very welcoming to all these refugees. First of all, I'm much more welcoming on the refugees to, uh, to uh, women and children. Uh, you know, and, you know, when you see these streams of refugees in Europe coming out of Syria, there's women and children, but there's a lot of guys. I've seen a lot of, a lot of guys muscling their way ahead. So, you know, I have more confidence the women and children are, are less of a problem. But put serious limits on it in terms of the numbers, of course. Um, but do not, do not uh, try to do what they've done in Europe. Um, we talked about, thanks to your help, you gave me that article, that, um, you know, the, the, the situation in Germany, situation in Sweden, you know, the harassment of women uh, by these guys because they're the, the Muslim view and say nothing of the radical Muslim view of women is so different. And, and, and you know, these countries are changing. And um, do you have that quote? Yeah, this was uh, from 2016. Her name is uh, Christian Nielsen. And she and is now the, being confirmed in the process of being confirmed. She's the nominee to head DHS. DHS. I, I don't like this. Go ahead. And uh, she led a business uh, committee at the World Economic Forum, and they issued a report. And this is a, 
a piece of the report, quote, the key policy issue confronting Europe is not whether to accept forced migrants, but rather how to turn the associated challenges into opportunities, end quote. And so the report uh, basically outlines steps that European countries should take to better assimilate and bring in these immigrants, rather than questioning the fundamental policy of whether or not we should accept them. Is there more there where she's more affirmative about it's not going to stop and you shouldn't stop it. Here's one more thing about that. One more quote that jumped out. Um, the report urged, quote, reframing, reframing the discourse surrounding refugees from one of risk to one that recognizes the substantial social and economic contribution they can make to their host societies is increasingly important in light of the current large scale influx of migrants into Europe. So swallow it. She's basically saying to Germany and Sweden and France and everybody, swallow it. They're coming and that's it. Right. And it's going to be good for your economy. Right. I don't know what it's going to do to national identity, and I wonder whether it's going to be good for your economy. Uh, I keep thinking of that Michelle Hollenbach book. What's it called? Surrender? Uh, Submission. Submission, yeah. And how they gradually get in and then take over a country simply by uh, organizing politically and asking very modestly uh, for control of just one major department of government, the Department of Education. Ah, Interesting. Let me close with this, because I made a point of this. I said, look, we can talk about the problems of uh, screening and getting these guys in who are going to cause trouble. But I said up front, and I wondered if you thought I'm right about this. After 9-11, most of the major terrorist problems here have been caused by homegrown guys. Now, I mean, they're influenced by stuff from overseas. But whether you're talking about uh, Orlando or uh, Fort Hood, or... The Boston, Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah. Uh, these, these are people who came and been here a long time. Uh, and uh, so we need to pay attention to the incubator here. Are we incubating terrorism here? I said twice in the debate, I looked at this uh, place in Patterson, New Jersey, where this uh, truck murderer came from. And, you know, he lived in an apartment complex right behind the Omar Mosque. Well, I've been told by some senior law enforcement people that everybody knows the Omar Mosque is a bad place. It's a place that generates a lot of bad stuff. And uh, this little apartment complex behind it is a nest. So I said, I hope we're penetrating it. I hope we have informants in there. I hope people are going into that mosque. I don't think Michael picked up on that. I don't think he agreed to that. But we we have to because we are – it's not just a matter of people coming in from outside who are – destroying it's people growing up inside and destroying and the other side of this is they are better at assimilating people even in a small context of a mosque and apartment building to their point of view than we are with all of american society has to offer um you know uh the the study that was done a few years ago think of this for the the role of the high school kids whose parents were born in another country a majority of them before they started high school identified as either hyphenated Americans or Americans. When they finished high school, the majority of them identified as the country of origin of their parents. So they became Mexicans or Guatemalans or Frenchmen or Germans. That's the opposite of the melting pot. We're not encouraging them to think of themselves as, uh, as Americans. Uh, remember Mrs. Bennett's story about uh, in D.C. and the public schools, the girls uh, and the team, what was it, a soccer team? And the girls were, you know, giving a bad time to each other. And one said, well, you're Ethiopian. You don't know that. And the other one said, well, yeah, but you're Egyptian. And yeah, well, yeah, well, you're, you're, uh, you know, from Syria. And she said, wait a minute, you're not Ethiopian. You're not Syrian. Uh, You're not from Angola. Angola. You're Americans. Weren't you born here? Yes. Uh, Well, then speak to yourself as as if you were Americans. That failure to identify can be very consequential because if people join something, I remember a guy said to me when I told my one of my sons had joined the Marines, he said, well, certain kind of big, strong, vigorous boys, they join the Marines or they join the Bloods and the Crips or maybe something in between. But, you know, you know, a certain kind of personality is drawn to this. And, and you know, the jihad thing appeals to a lot of people, death and fire and weapons and killing people um there's a better way to do that and that's you know would be the marines among other things uh let's take two minutes on virginia 
Uh, was it a tsunami? No. Was it a win for the Democrats? Yeah. I don't think there's any question about New Jersey. Um, I don't think we had a great candidate in New Jersey, a Republican, and he was going out of office, the least popular governor in history in uh, New Jersey. Chris, Chris Christie. Christie. Yeah. So it was an easy one for the Dems. Um, Virginia was close, but uh, Virginia is not the uh, the old South. It is Northern Virginia. You know that very well. Yeah. And uh, what were you telling me about Loudoun County? Yeah, if you want uh, the race in a microcosm, uh, Ed Gillespie, uh, several years ago when he was running against uh, Warner for the Senate uh, in Loudoun County, Northern Virginia, affluent suburb area, uh, experienced a huge population growth the past couple of years. They were basically even 50, uh, 50, 50, 51, 49. I can't remember exactly. This time around, Northam uh, beat Gillespie by about seven or eight points there. Um, and so whether that's the Trump effect, um, maybe perhaps there's some there. Um, but I think that captures, uh, you know, the swing of Virginia in the past several election cycles, yeah. you know, Trump, it was the only Southern quote, Southern state. He didn't win. A lot of people don't consider it that Southern anymore. Yeah, that's well, that's right. It's not as if it was for Trump in the election and then uh, turned and flipped against right. him. Right. It, it, it wasn't. So I take it as a caution, a warning light. Sure, and, sure. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I don't see this as predicting in any powerful way, uh, you know, change over the House. A lot more stories to be told before we can uh, have some sense of what that's going to be and that's going to mean. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's better to win than to lose. But um, I, I don't – it's not a tsunami. It's a wave, uh, maybe a mini wave. Take note. Pass tax reform. Pass some other things and you'll be there. All right, folks, those are my thoughts. Uh, time to get to our interviews this week. My first interview is Senator James Risch from Idaho, a man I have admired for a long time, mostly from a distance. It's a long way out there from where I live, but uh, he comes across loud and clear, as you'll see. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Folks, uh, it's a great opportunity, uh, and I am delighted to introduce you to Senator James Risch, U.S. Senator for Idaho, member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the Committee on Foreign Relations. Very important activities these days. It was great to see you at uh, Laura Ingram's party, the launch of that show. That was, yeah. Jay, go ahead. I, I, I think Lauren's. Uh, I think she's getting, Lauren's going to do a great job there. I really do. I'm excited about it. Yeah, do you know she was one of my speechwriters? Yeah, I saw that. Back yeah. when I, I'm, I'm old enough now that everybody's worked for me. Everybody 40 or so has worked for me. So. Anyway, if you wondered why I sounded good, it's because I had some very smart uh, speech writing. Yeah, that's all, that is always helpful, believe me. Good, good staff helpful. helps. Uh, okay, I, I will pass. It's fall, and I would love to talk to you about Boise State and University of Idaho, but we'll pass. We'll do that another time. We have okay, another time, another time. Let's, Let's get into the president's trip. Um, first of all, a question just seems to be popping up in the last couple of hours. Do you have any indication that he might meet with Putin? You know, um, I, I don't, other than what I've read uh, in the uh, media. The, he, uh, he and uh, his staff hasn't, haven't shared that uh, with us. Um, and I, I suspect the decision hasn't been made, and that's why it hasn't been uh, shared with us. As you know, having served in these capacities, if indeed it is going to happen, there are intense negotiations going on between the two staffs right now as to when, where, who will say what, uh, what issues are out of bounds, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure that if, if indeed they're contemplating that, 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 that'd be my guess as to what's happening at the, at the um, moment strikes me i may be dead wrong here but the psychology of this with all this swirling about russia and, and uh, people would say a lot of the media would say oh the last thing he should do is meet with putin it'll look so bad and there he is meeting with his buddy but it'd be very trump-like to say well i'm going to meet with a guy you know he's the head of a country yeah. i'm going to meet with a guy well well not only that but um you, you know the media uh th this <laughs> The, the, the media isn't looking out for uh, the national interests of America. The media is no. looking out for how can we hate Trump and beat up on him and hold him <laughs> up to public hate and contempt and ridicule to the public. That's it has right. nothing to do with what's good for America. Um, what's good for America is that the head of every country uh, have a good relationship, personal relationship with every other head of country, because that's how accidents are avoided and that's how... Uh, 
we get through what uh, sometimes are crises. So uh, the, the fact that uh, he knows the president of China, knows the president of Russia, knows the president of, uh, of any other country is not sure. a bad thing. It's a good thing. Sure, sure. I know. And you're absolutely right. The media is certainly not his North Star. He doesn't take direction from them. How's he, how's he doing on this trip? I was taken yesterday. Um, you were on CNN. By the way, I'm always taken when you're on CNN. They give you these long sessions. And they, I, I saw one that went, went through three breaks, I think. Wolf Blitzer was trying to get you to say something really critical about it. Right. Yeah. They, and, and, and generally speaking, you know, you, as you know, you got to pick the, the hosts because there's some of them, all they want is a punching bag up there to, yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, for them to spew their hate for uh, Trump and, and you sit yeah. there and, uh, and take it. And I'm not, I'm not interested in that. You know, if, if people, if people want to deliver the news uh, to the American public, yeah, they should. It's uh American public needs to have this stuff, but they need a straight shot. They don't need, they don't need opinion. They need news. Well, I admire you going on. I worked there for a couple of years and it was often painful, but uh, yeah. good for you to be there because uh, that side of things and that side of the viewers need, needs to hear from someone like you. You said uh, yesterday with Jake Tapper that uh, Kim Jong-un must realize he's dealing with Trump, not Obama. You know, that's really critical. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, as you know, when you deal with uh, foreign nationals like this, they, they paint they paint all of us with a broad brush as Americans and uh, as if we were, were, we have some uh, monolithic uh, thought process, et cetera. And like everything in the world, uh, uh, leadership of a country a, a lot of times is uh, influenced by personalities. And uh, uh, certainly there couldn't be two personalities farther apart than Obama and uh, Trump. And, you know, they, they, they figured out that there was no way in the world that uh, Obama uh, would pull the trigger, no matter what happened. He'd, he'd want to negotiate and you know, what have you. Uh, you know, I've talked to Trump about this, and, and this man is laser-focused on defending the national security of this country. And if Kim Jong-un thinks that he can push the envelope to the point where the pre- he gets to the line where the president believes that the country's in jeopardy, he is, uh, he, he is in very dangerous waters because... Uh, uh, you know, Trump, uh, look, he, he's uh, one thing that gets really underreported is he's pulled the trigger twice already. As you recall, once in Syria, when they used, uh, uh, poison against their own people. And then again, in Afghanistan, uh, when, <clears throat> when the Taliban killed a Navy SEAL, he used the, the Moab and, uh, for the first time ever. <clears throat> and those were two, uh, they, they were measured responses. They were clear responses. They were immediate responses. And people ought to take a lesson from that. Yeah, no kidding. He will pull it. Yeah. And, and they, they certainly have at least uncertainty. As you said, they had certainty Obama. They knew Obama wouldn't do it. With Trump, they have to think he might. And as you said, there's precedent yeah. from, from doing it. Uh, well, I, I kind of hope he does meet with Putin. Uh, I don't, yeah. I, you know, I, I do trust him. I know the idiosyncrasies and I know, you know, the tweets and all that stuff. But sure. I kind of trust this guy in a meeting that he's not going to be rolled. You know, he's not going to be yeah. pushed around. Oh, there's no, there's no question about that. Um, the, the other thing that Americans should understand, too, is, look, look Russia does some bad stuff. We, we all know that. We've seen it. We've uh, experienced it over the years. They have, a different, they have a different view of the world than we do. You know, our, our uh, uh, foreign policy and our national mindset is to go out and spread peace and tranquility and democracy and freedom everywhere in the world. The Russians, their view of how they get a seat on the national stage is to go out and spread fear and discord and interference. And, and, and it just, it makes no sense. I mean, you, you, you try to sit and think through why are they doing these things like the interference in in our elections? Why are they doing these things? Because there's there's really no objective. When you look at the things they did where they attempted to interfere in our elections, I mean, if they're saying, oh, it was to get Trump elected. It wasn't. There, there's, there's, they did stuff against Trump. They did stuff against Hillary. They were all over the board. There, there just is no consistency, and it doesn't make sense. The good thing about the relationship with Russia, and, and indeed to a lesser extent, but still a pretty good extent with China, and with every other uh, nuclear armed country, we have 
long standing uh, agreements, histories, relationships uh, with these countries. And we aren't going to get into a nuclear war with these countries by accident or uh, willy nilly. Now, that's not true with North Korea because you have a whole different situation there. So, you know, I mean, as far as Russia is concerned, the, the, as you know, the, the, the policy is, is it's mutual mass destruction, total destruction. If either party pulls the trigger, both sides know that. And as a result of that, uh, they're, they're very transparent in, uh, in everybody knowing what the other person has because common sense tells you you can't do anything without assuring your own destruction. So, so that, you know, we're, we're not going to get into it with them. But North Korea is a different ballgame. All right, let me get your thoughts quickly. We've got to let you go soon. I know we sure. appreciate your time, Senator Rich, on the whole work of the committees, the Russian news, the dossier, the Uranium One. Are we going to see fair and equal treatment for uh, Democrat uh, involvement as well as uh, uh, a, a possible Republican involvement? Uh, looks, looks to me like it's sort of going that way. Yeah, um, there's more and more being raised that uh, these Democrats have been have been wringing their hands about uh, uh, about these things. Uh, they're they're in the same position as everybody else. I mean, probably the most stunning thing I've seen in the last week is uh, Donna Brazil's description of what happened inside the uh, uh, National Democrat Committee. Can you imagine if uh, these same allegations or facts would have come out uh, showing that Trump had fixed the Republican? Uh, uh, and, and there's no doubt it was fixed. I mean, it, uh, the, the facts are black and white there. They just froze Bernie Sanders out. Whether you, you know, whether you like Bernie, whether you don't like Bernie, uh, as an American, right. I don't like to hear this stuff. This is third world country stuff, you know? No, I know. Um, I know. Of course, the irony was that during the Trump campaign, if there was a worry on the part of some Trump supporters, it was that the RNC would shut out Trump, you know? Yeah, that's the, true. The, yeah. the other, the other well, way around. Yeah, but, that, but, uh, they're, but they're, I can't. Um, I, I you got to get. You got to hand it. Whatever else you say about Donald Trump, I mean, you know, all of us are not used to dealing with with his style and his personality in politics. But look, he beat some pretty good people. You, you know, bet he did. You, you know, we had did. we had uh, sixteen of our best, uh, and uh, I know and he he came in never having really participated in the party before, and really never having participated oh, in an election before, and he won. You know, only one fair and square. I I was a national surrogate for Rubio, and uh, yeah. uh, of course, when that was over, uh, you know, I I did what uh, all of us did, and that is got behind the uh, got behind yeah. the the nominee. But uh, uh, look, I I watched what he did, and he did it he did it by himself. I mean, you know, this also laid to rest all this talk about how oh, you can buy elections. No, you can't. He spent less. I don't know. I forgot what the what the comparison was. What he spent compared to what Hillary spent. I mean, she just overwhelmed him with dollars, and he won. You know, and that that tells us a lot a lot of things. But one is, this government still belongs to the people. It's our government. It's 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 not. Uh, it, it, it's not some Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. It's the American people's government. Speaking of the people, last question. Um, you know, what, what a lot of us see and feel is, all right, there's this investigation being carried on by the committee and by Mueller about the president, we think, uh, and collusion with Russia. And then there's this stuff that pops up about the dossier and the Uranium One scandal, which may cast very harsh light on Democrats. Will there be fairness and equal treatment, if you will, uh, of the two? I don't see how there can not be. I mean, uh, um, these things are all being looked at. There's going to be a report at the end. You can't focus on one and, and ignore the other. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic we'll get what we need to be on that. How long, how long do we go on? How long for these committees? And maybe a guess on Mueller, too. Yeah, I, I, I can't guess on Mueller. Um, you know, I was a prosecutor for a long time. I, I understand how these things go. And Mueller is actually moving a little faster than what I thought he would move. But we'll we'll see. Uh, as far as the uh, the uh, uh, committee that uh, that's in that, well, there's three committees in Eskine. I'm on the intelligence committee. But as far as the three committees are concerned, our committee, um, we want this wrapped up. I mean, this is something that doesn't need to go on and on and on. We've There, there have been tens of thousands of documents that we've reviewed, uh, many scores of people interviewed. 
um, we, we need to, the, the jury needs to get to reaching a verdict here. And uh, yes, uh, there are people that want to continue looking uh, under yeah. every rock and there's only so many rocks you can look under. And uh, we're, uh, we're, we've, we've worked really hard and it's time to move on. All right. Listen, we want to thank you. We're very pleased. To, in fact, delighted that you're there and part of this process that gives us confidence, but thanks so much for coming on to Bill Bennett show. We really appreciate it. Senator Rich. Hope we'll have you back. Well, thanks so much for having me. I want to meet you up in the Sawtooth sometime for a hike. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Beautiful country. It doesn't get any better than that. It does not get any better than that. It absolutely <laughs> does not. Okay, thanks, sir. All right. Nice talking. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, what's really at the root of these recent horrific attacks in America? From the West Village in Manhattan to Sutherland Springs, Texas to Las Vegas, Nevada. We've witnessed different kinds of evil up close, and the country's having a hard time wrapping its mind around it and how we should respond. What's going on? Here to help us sort through these tough and important issues is Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I'm proud to say that I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group, and because of its support, we're able to bring you this podcast and important conversations about the state of our republic and national security. This topic certainly fits here. To learn more about the American Strategy Group, go to amstrategy.org. Brian, how are you? Good, Bill. How are you? All right. I'm here in Las Vegas. We're going to interview Steve Wynn here pretty soon for another uh, series of conversations. And I just uh, passed by uh, the Mandalay Bay Hotel. Um, And in the car... About 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, maybe 1 o'clock in the afternoon, um, saw a lineup of people with uh, crosses in the middle of the street, the highway, flowers, um, hundreds of crosses from uh, the slaughter that took place here just a few weeks ago. We've got that. We've got San Antonio. We've got this thing in New York. All different things, different people. Uh, but it's unnerving. And I must say, you know, I normally remain pretty calm on this and say, well, this one is because of this, this one's because of that, this one's because of radical Islam. But I don't know, the frequency uh, suggests something's, you know, something's wrong. Maybe something's wrong at the center. You think hard and deep about these things. What do you think, Brian Kennedy? Um, well, it's an excellent question, Bill, and an excellent topic, because I think you're right. People are searching for what all this means, and one can over-evaluate them. But uh, I think the seriousness of all this suggests that there's a bit of a war going on, or the start of a war, that people have not fully uh, absorbed cues, different kinds of social cues seem to have been sent to people that it's okay to kill Americans, to kill each other. And in the spirit of either Islamic domination or Islamic conquest, as in the case of New York or in the case of Las Vegas, you know, we still don't know exactly what went on, but what appears to be at any, in any event the manifestation of a kind of attack against the United States itself, even by people here in the United States, as if it's okay now to kill the, you know, the American people. And the start of that war is something we ought to be taking seriously and figure out what that means. And so I think, I think serious people should be looking hard at that. I'd be I'd be curious what you thought of that, Bill. I was thinking about Madison, um, Federalist Paper Number Ten. A faction is a group of citizens united by a common passion or impulse, and we've had them from the beginning. That's why Madison wrote what he did. And the task of government is to sort out and regulate, or if not regulate, sort out and make decisions among those various factions and there are solutions that uh, the founders proposed broaden the sphere widen the sphere and other things uh, that led to our constitution but they understood uh, there were these deep passions in men right and that 
these often led to disagreements and even hateful disagreements. I guess what I think about it, Brian, and there's no great conclusion, is that it seems to be the case now that disagreement, which leads to hate, means to some people you can hurt the person you disagree with, indeed even kill that person. I'm thinking of, I mean, these very dramatic examples, horrible catastrophes and slaughters, um, the situation in Texas, I mean, my God, in, in the church uh, in, in Sutherland Springs, um, the West Village, um, the Las Vegas uh, shooting. But what about, you know, on a, on a lesser level, what about this, this neighbor tackling Rand Paul? Well, we've all had a temptation to tackle a senator from now, now and then. What about this guy planning with his rifle and going out and saying to a, a person at the field, this is the Republican baseball team, and then lines up his rifle to, to shoot and kill. There's a kind of um, escalation, I guess is what I'm after, that maybe goes from, you know, the seeds of faction are sown in the nature of man, Madison says, uh, and liberty is to faction what air is to fire. Uh, you can't get rid of faction without liberty. But the idea was to control this. Remember, remember in another Federalist that says... Uh, you know, first, once once you learn how to control uh, the worst impulses of, of the people, you then have to control the government. There's an emphasis on restraint and control. Are, are we losing that? I'm, I'm spinning off here, Brian. I'll just say all I, yeah. know, I know about this and then let you comment. I'm thinking of my old philosophy stuff, Plato. You know, reason should rule the soul because, um, you know, if it doesn't, it's... Uh, you know, it's these wild horses, you know, it's this, uh, these impulses, these desires, which have no governing principle themselves attached to them. This has to be done by another uh, part of the brain or mind or culture or society it has to be taught and you have to be raised to it. But, you know, supposing you spend your whole life growing up hearing those sons of guns, those, you know, I'll clean up my language, those horrible people, they deserve to die. I'm sure a lot of young people hear that. Um, I'm sure, Brian, in the end, the trigger's in the mind of man. I'm sure of that. But why it's there and exhibits itself in the ways it does now, I'm just not quite sure. Is it because the guardrails have come down? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, it's almost the sense that the elites in this country have given a signal with the whole idea of resistance after Trump got elected, and here we are, just about a year year anniversary of Trump getting elected, that whole idea of resistance was to say, everything that used to be legitimate is no longer legitimate. All those rules that we used to play by, those don't count anymore. And so you can have comedians doing a mock severed head of the president. Yeah and celebrities talking about blowing up the White House. And all of a sudden, for those people on the fringes of society who are already perhaps pathological, they hear those things. And all of a sudden, the light goes off in their head and says, how about if I'm one of those people that is part of the more radical part of that resistance? And then for those people on the fringes, either either literally or figuratively, they go do something. And I think part of what we're seeing today is a manifestation of those people doing something. And in so doing, we're creating a society where people will feel like it's being, and you've heard me say this before, I think, there's a certain disassociation going on among the American people. There are those people who are willing to love and respect the country, and those people who were willing to engage in violence because things didn't work out their way. And that's something that is demoralizing, frankly, for a lot of Americans. And that demoralization process has been going on, I think, for a long time. I mean, it's no wonder the guy in, um, in Sutherland, you don't even want to say the guy's name, but 
that guy looked to be a malcontent who we probably, as a people, gave a very bad education to. And his family was not quite able to raise him the right way. How many people are in our society today for whom we've given a bad education, for whom the family has been destroyed, for whom love of country was not present? And then all of a sudden, there are these signs that it's okay to attack the symbols of the country. Well, don't be surprised when they attack the symbols of the country and attack one another. And so playing out is this demoralization, which means that everyone who cares about this should not just hang their heads, but should be active, I think, in a remoralization of the country. A remoralization. It's time for Americans to come together and realize this is our country and we ought to defend it and love one another and realize really what's at stake. And what's at stake is the future of civilization. Because if we allow this country to become disassociated from itself, there'll be no defending it. And if there's no defending it, then there's no defending Western civilization. And so I, uh, go ahead. Having, our, having our leaders understand this right now seems to me a very high priority. Disassociation, disassociative, remoralization. Good th- words, good words to think about. Is there, I'm just going to throw out a few things. I remember, I can't remember whose line it was. One of you guys might remember you or Chris who said that the veneer of civilization is thin. You know, scratch it and it, uh, you know, the scalding liquid comes out. If that is true and these bonds that hold us together uh, in civilization are fragile, we have been assaulting them, as you just pointed out, assaulting our ideals on a pretty regular basis now for about 50, 60 years, since the 60s, I'd say. And so maybe no surprise that the spewing is coming out. You know, one one just searches for the right metaphor here. Let let me ask a very uh, prosaic question. Does this have something to do with the fact that there are a lot of people wandering around at large in society who shouldn't be? The deinstitutionalization of the truly mentally ill and mentally unbalanced? This was a a warning that Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the man who introduced me for my government job, first government job, talked about. Well, yeah, yeah. in some ways, that does sound right, that there are certain people that obviously are crazy and should be in institutions, but then there are a whole bunch of people who just left to their own devices are probably harmless. And who are we to round them up and and put them away. But uh, I was... Well, especially uh, with this drug problem, especially with this opioid well, problem you, we got. Right, you have the drug problem, but you know, I, I've, been, I've been very mindful of everything I've learned from you over the years. And Remember you had that index of leading cultural indicators yeah, yeah, yeah. Way, way back when. And I was reminded of the fact that, you know, looking at both, you know, the shooter in Las Vegas, shooter or shooters, we still don't know, and Sutherland, you look and you think, well, is it any wonder we've created a, you know, a generation of people we probably didn't educate very well, didn't have very good manners, had a weird upbringing where standards of right and wrong were trampled on, you know, things that seemed decent 50 years ago now are laughed at as passe and, and just silly. And all of a sudden those kind of people have access to weapons. They've always had access to weapons, but they now look at the world and the country and they think, I wonder if this is a good country or not. Maybe I'll take it out on these people because what actually pushes someone over the edge to engage in that kind of violence? Well, it's something, and I I don't believe it's, purely them being crazy. I think it's them being evil. And there's a certain nihilism involved. There's a certain knowing rejection of what is good about your society. And when you get to that point, that's a slightly different thing than just worrying about crazy people. Yeah, fair enough. 
with the loosening of the bonds, the ties, and the elimination of the handrails, and, uh, you know, you could go through a whole list. Maybe it's no surprise that this stuff all bubbles out, boils out. Let's hear from a millennial for a moment, either a comment or a question, Chris Beach. Sure, Brian, uh, what are the remedies here? Uh, what does remoralization look like? I think the hard thing that even I have with grasping with these recent spree of attacks is remoralization is a generational process. It's, it's a long process, and it's hard to explain to people sometimes. And when the left comes out and says, hey, gun control, gun control, or uh, talk about mental health things, those things seem immediate, and they seem like something we can grasp as, as a solution. So I think to, to a lot of people, even those who are conservatives, you, you get overwhelmed by these tacks, and sometimes you just want to say, okay, maybe we should try that. Um, how do you go about talking about and explaining the remedies to the American people without it seeming like a lost cause? Well, yeah, that's an excellent point, Chris. Um, it's, it's very satisfying to just point to gun control. But, you know, tell that to Rand Paul after a neighbor attacks him without a gun, but just decides to go after him because... <laughs> Gun control is the has been something that the left has been pushing for so long because they don't like the idea at you know at a fundamental level of people being govern themselves. They want someone else to govern them. Yes, it's a generational challenge to try to remoralize the country, but if it is, you better start today because we don't have forever. And there's no silver bullet in politics. It's slugging it out every day. But I was reminded of Trump, and I was watching his um, victory speech after he won. And he talked about being the president for all Americans and loving all Americans and having all Americans get together to solve our big problems. That's a moral statement. There's nothing divisive about that. He wants to protect Americans and to get them to love one another. Easy to say, much harder to do. But, you know, I mention that because it's worth absorbing the challenge and taking that challenge seriously of what it means to remoralize the country. We've had these periods in, in American history where we weren't behaving as well as we should have been. And we've had big challenges, and people thought that they ought to um, take things more seriously. Now is one of those times, it seems to me, because you look at the Antifa movement, for instance. What is that all about? It, yeah. it seems like a bunch of anarchists who want to destroy America and civilization. The left has not been that uh, condemning of them. Yeah. Antifa still operates. It's only going to go, I think it's only going to you know, pick up steam as the political cycle you know, leads up to 2018 and beyond. That now's the time for both the left and the right in America to embrace our civilization. And that's, you know, again, that's not a, it's easy to say that. And I don't want it to sound no, like no, a platitude. No. platitude it's hard to do. It, hard to do. There has to come a time when people believe either this civilization, the United States, is worth defending, or there will, there will continue this acceleration toward what I was suggesting earlier, a kind of disassociation. You talk about California, where I live, leaving the Union, Texas leaving the Union, breaking up the country. And people will think that because they're frivolous and it's easy to say, hard to do. But when, pe when people start thinking and talking that way and you combine that with Antifa in their anarchy and anarchism and this, these, this violence, which is no yeah. small matter, and Islamic terrorism which is emboldened yeah. to defeat us here at home. Yeah. The combination yeah. of all those things should focus the mind of our leaders 
to be talking in a different way, in a more serious way than what we have been. So I I don't have any, I don't have any silver bullets, unfortunately, because there aren't any there. Well, one also, I take it as a, as a, as a point of reference, remoralization, but also as a symptom of the problem. I mean, I sometimes just think and knowing something about the issue, just shake my head and say, what is with a society where 70% of people want to re-legalize drugs uh, for young people? Drugs that make you less attentive, less focused, and stupid, and interfere with your memory. Well, what could be wrong with us to think that this would be fine? You know, there are now four... Um, uh, 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 substances that uh, are tracked. This was the article you gave me, Chris. What is it? Opioids, marijuana, alcohol. What's the fourth one? Just other recreational drugs. Other recreational drugs. And only one state in the country uh, it leads is in the top ten in all, use of all four. And that's Colorado. I mean, what are they doing? What are they doing? How does this make any sense at all? And this this is not remoralization. This is going further down the down the path. I don't know. And of course, the people who talk language of moralization or remoralization are often made fun of, scoffed at, and um, that's a problem. What? Well, I think yes. Well, I think your drug your drug uh, point is quite apt because. What is the design of these drugs other than to make us stupid? Yeah, no, that's and less and less productive and less right. moral and less decent. Yeah, and yeah. who is funding? Just to get political, who is funding the big drug legalization movements in America? It's George Soros and his Open Society Foundation. Uh, it's also a lot of big investment firms now too. You know. Right, sure. A lot but of Wall Street, a lot of, lot of good, quote, good Republicans. I tell you, I've had these conversations that have ended in some heated dinner parties, you know. But, but sure, I, there I are people I, who want to make money on, on big marijuana. Yeah, but they weren't, aiming to get, they weren't aiming to get people drugged up. Soros is. Right, Soros is. And he just put $18 billion into his foundation from yeah. his personal wealth. $18 billion into the Open Society Foundation worldwide, most of which is targeted here at the United States, because he wants to change the United States. Yeah. And the motto of the Open Society Foundation is that nothing can be known to be true. <laughs> and so that kind of nihilism is behind the whole drug legalization movement. Nothing can, nothing, can be, be nothing can be known to be true. You, if nothing can be known to be true, you might as well be on drugs. And you might as well just give up trying to make judgments about Sutherland Springs or anything else. Chris wants to say something before we wrap up or maybe ask a question. Yeah, no, one other thing that uh, this conversation led me to think about is in terms of the cultural signals and the problems with the culture today. I think we live in a culture that seeks, in terms of drugs, seeks instant gratification. Uh, they get instant gratification on social media, on their phones, via drugs. And then in the same way, whenever these uh, catastrophic events happen, they look for instant answers, uh, instant solutions, uh, gun control, things like that. And the thing we're, what we're talking about today are long-term, uh, the great relearning, as Tom Wolfe called it. These are things that are you know, instilled great day re-learning. by day over the course of people's lives, not instant. And so I think that there's just this dramatic disconnect when you're talking to the culture today, people are delaying marriage. Uh, they're delaying the formative events of life in search of instant gratification. And so I think there's this chasm that you have to reach across to explain these concepts to people. And I think that's what you and Brian are highlighting here today. Well, if the family, you know, collapses, and remember Moynihan, same Moynihan said when he was asked the most consequential change he had seen in American history, the time he took office, he said the collapse of the family in the whole, the whole North Atlantic uh, regions of Europe United States, uh, if you can't count on the schools to do their job, and we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, and if, uh, you know, the churches are bare ruined choirs, you know, empty, and some places empty of serious message, um, you know, are we surprised? Are we shocked? 
I guess it's those institutions, Brian, last thought, that we look to for the remoralization because we need these, what did Burke call them, these uh, little platoons, these platoons to uh, organize in, to be organized uh, by, to, to do the right thing. No, absolutely. I think they. I think you need you need that, and you also need clarity about what's really at stake. Because even though we've been talking about uh, this violence here at home, you have the president over in Asia meeting with, among others, Xi Jinping, and they're talking about trade and finance and all the things they talk about. But while President Trump is there, uh, Xi Jinping has his military test a new very advanced fighter plane as if to say and by the way we're also ready for war yeah sure just to just to remind us it's a very serious world and look at all the engineers we graduate we in china and look at all we can do and so at the very moment we're going through this turmoil here at home both politically and socially and culturally, the Chinese are doubling down on everything. They're investing in their future, they're educating their children, and they're building a military. Yeah. And so, and so that ought to help us focus our minds when it comes to remoralization as well. That this is not just about the atrocious murder, which is happening on a too frequent basis, it's also about if we don't get this right, we're going to lose the country. Yeah. And most Americans believe, I think, that that's a moral question, and they're going to get that moral question right, and they're going to take it seriously. And all I would encourage is that all the listeners to this show, which is such a serious show, take it to heart that that's what's at stake yeah. and getting this right this remoralization of the country right is among the highest priorities we can have. Because if we don't get that right, we're not going to get the economy right or the rebuilding of the military, and we're not going to be able to make America great again. So it's all of one piece that one has to understand. Agreed. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Brian Kennedy, president of the Thank American you, Strategy Group. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. Yes, sir. Okay, folks, that's the show. I think it's one. I hope you do. hope you think it's as good a show as I thought it was. Thanks to our guests. Thanks for listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Talk to you next week.